Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's Medical Director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajin Bakta. Hello. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about sepsis. So let's start off with a case. I worked downtown here at Community Regional, and I had a case the other day. An elderly female was brought in by ambulance for altered mental status. The family says that she'd had about a day of increased sleepiness, not really responding. She normally does all her normal activities of daily living. You know, she lives alone. She still drives. When we saw her on exam, she like kind of wakes to painful stimuli. She's really hot to the touch. Her initial vitals are um, she's tachycardic, and her blood pressure is 70 over palp. Um, she was given some IV fluids. She was given her 30 mils per kilo of saline bolus. Her labs returned and show she had a terrible urinary tract infection as the cause of her sepsis. So today we're going to be talking about sepsis. Yeah, thanks for that case, Danielle. This sounds like such a typical everyday sepsis case that all of us see. And let's just define sepsis first. It's a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated response to infection. So why does this matter? Basically, the risk of death from sepsis is up to 30%. Once you get into septic shock territory, the risk of death goes up to 80%. And septic shock is sepsis with hypotension that even persists after fluids are given. Now, the most common infections come from the lungs, which is pneumonia, the abdomen, so think your gallbladder, liver, pancreas, appendix, abscesses, and the urinary system, like when we get UTIs or pyelonephritis. So let's break down some sepsis world definitions. I think a lot of us in our minds, especially I did for a long time, I always thought, oh, when you say sepsis, it must mean septic shock, so they must be hypotensive. But that's actually kind of the end of it. And so it's important to recognize even the earliest findings. So this is what we call SIRS, which is Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. And any two of the parameters that I'm going to mention right now would qualify someone as falling into SIRS, which is basically like pre-sepsis and is really important to notice. So the first criteria, temperature either high or low. So greater than 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or less than 95 degrees Fahrenheit. When people have severe infections, sometimes they actually can't mount a fever and they get really cold, especially with the very young and the very old. Now the next is respiratory rate greater than 20 or a PaCO2 less than 32 millimeters mercury. The next parameter is heart rate greater than 90 beats per minute. And the next parameter is a white blood cell count greater than 12,000 or less than 4,000, or greater than 10% bands. Now, in the pre-hospital setting, you're going you're gonna to have your temperature, respiratory rate, and heart rate to go by. Now, sepsis is simply the combination of SIRS plus some sort of microbial source. So it's kind of like knowing they have this complex of findings plus microbial source. Severe sepsis is sepsis plus greater than one organ system now dysfunctioning. So that can be either your heart with hypotension, your brain with altered mental status, your kidneys with oliguria, your lungs with ARDS, your acid-base status with acidosis. So it's basically like add in now one thing that's really wrong. 
And then septic shock is severe sepsis plus hypotension, unresponsive to fluid resuscitation. And what we mean by fluid resuscitation is at least a 30 milliliter per kilo bolus. And then last but not least, the last kind of sepsis definition is MODS, M-O-D-S, which stands for multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. And this is greater than one organ system requiring interventional homeostasis. So let's say now they have to be put on dialysis or they have to be put on vasopressors to maintain their blood pressure. And so we can already see from the case Danielle described, this patient is ticking off a lot of the boxes in these categories. So in going through the epidemiology, like why does this matter? How often do we see it? You know, the cascade of inappropriate immune responses to the presence of an infection, you know, also known as a sepsis, is the 11th leading cause of death in the United States, resulting in the hospitalization of more than 750,000 patients a year. So talk about how prevalent it is. So there was a study in 2012 from the American Journal of Respiratory Care, and it really looked at this. It was a large community-based study in Seattle that looked at the causes of severe sepsis and found that more than 40% of all severe sepsis patients arrived via EMS. The study also demonstrated that the crude incidence rate of severe sepsis was 3.3 per 100 EMS patients, which is really higher than MI, acute myocardial infarction, which is only 2.3 per 100, and even higher than stroke. Stroke is only 2.2 per 100. I know we have a lot of responses, you know, for heart attacks and for strokes, but really sepsis should be right up there with those big ones. This definitely does affect a lot of Americans. So, Todd, why don't you take us through the pathophys of sepsis? What's going on in our body when we have infections that, that's causing a dysregulation of our immune system? Yeah, so I've often heard, even from healthcare professionals, that the term sepsis being used in layman's term as an infection that's gotten into your blood. And I just want to clarify that a little bit. You can actually have bacteria in your blood, and that's called bacteremia. What I think people mean when they say that the infection has gotten into the blood is that you're now having a systemic inflammatory response. Your body's trying to fight this infection that starts off in one organ and sends all of these inflammatory markers and cascades of signals that sometimes is an over-response but sometimes it's appropriate to fight a severe infection. And it just leads to your whole body really responding to all of these inflammatory markers that can be helpful, but too much of it can also be harmful. So some of these inflammatory markers and responses can lead to endothelial dysfunction, which line the insides of our blood vessels, and that can lead to capillary leakage, which is when fluid is supposed to stay inside of our blood vessels and starts leaking outside of the blood vessels. Some of these inflammatory markers can lead to coagulopathy, which is a problem with how the blood clots. And so you can lead to, in severe cases, what we call DIC, or disseminated intravascular coagulation, which basically is a bleeding disorder where your blood is not able to clot and you bleed uncontrollably. You can also lead to uh, different types of cellular dysfunction. Normally, our cells are working to create new cells, um, but unfortunately, in this inflammatory state, all of our cells are not able to use energy efficiently, and all of our energy is being directed to fight the infection, and that can lead to organ failure. And then also sepsis and inflammatory responses can lead to 
cardiovascular dysfunction. Your left ventricle can end up dilating and stretching out, and in an attempt to get more blood flow to the body can actually get weaker, and that can lead to worsening hypotension in combination with all the things that I discussed a moment ago. All of these things can lead to several organs failing, and this is where we see a lot of the mortality and a lot of the complications from sepsis. Padia, why don't you take us through the assessment um, or like how to choose a protocol? So this is a tough one because the presentation of sepsis patients can really vary. So some common chief complaints can be fever, altered mental status, pain, shortness of breath, which is like a lot of different things. We don't really have a specific sepsis protocol in SEMSA, which is our Central California EMS agency, but some other states do. So, for example, um, Wake County EMS in Raleigh, North Carolina, has a pretty robust suspected sepsis septic shock protocol. They utilize three SIRS criteria, excluding the white blood cell count. So that would be our respiratory rate, heart rate, and temperature. And then they add in mental status and blood pressure to establish a septic patient. They initiate fluids and do a pre-hospital call-in to notify the hospital that they're coming as a sepsis alert. And I think that's really cool. So they have like a pre-hospital sepsis alert, just like how we have pre-hospital, you know, stat trauma alerts or an MI alert. Now, in our own system here at SEMSA, we actually did a study published in 2019 in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine that looked at data right here from American Ambulance. It was a retrospective review of almost 2,500 patients who presented to the ED by ambulance in a one-month time period. We looked at the pre-hospital QSOFA score to see if it could predict sepsis in these EMS patients. Now, QSOFA is a three-point score based off of vital signs and clinical signs to identify patients with sepsis and then predict who's at risk for poor outcomes. So you get one point for systolic blood pressure less than 100, one point for GCS less than 15, and one point for respiratory rate greater than 22. QSOFA is considered positive if you get two points, so two out of those three things. If the patient is both hypotensive and altered, that's two points, and that's called QSOFA positive. In our study of over, again, 2,000 patients, we wanted to see if this score could apply to the pre-hospital vitals and physical exam to help identify septic patients in this setting. We looked at discharge diagnosis and hospital mortality and length of stay in these patients. Now, our study did not find that the QSOFA is a good screening tool for sepsis, as it was very specific but not sensitive for it. But it did show that for every QSOFA point, it was associated with an increase in probability of sepsis and an ED diagnosis of infection. The study also showed that the higher the score, so the more hypotensive, altered, and fast respiratory rate, then the higher the likelihood of ICU admission, ICU length of stay, and increased hospital length of stay. So much sicker patients if you have a high QSOFA score. So with no good pre-hospital scores for sepsis, you know, let's talk about what are some clues in the history to help us suspect sepsis. One is age. They're usually on the higher age spectrum or very young. So you look at our elderly patients or our very young patients. Usually the presence of temperature dysregulation, so either fever or low temperature. And then previous infection or illness. So they've been diagnosed with a recent urinary tract infection or had diagnosed with pneumonia. Maybe they have a cellulitis or an abscess. Recent surgery or invasive procedure. 
immunocompromised state? So do they have diabetes, cancer, a transplant patient, end-stage renal disease on dialysis? Or an indwelling device or line? So do they have a PIC line? Do they have dialysis access, some other kind of external port? Clues on the review systems when talking to the patient or the family or the caregiver is, is there new rash or bruising? Are there chills, body aches, maybe decreased urine output? So if it's a baby, it would be like less wet diapers, very elderly. If they haven't peed in a while, are they altered, different from their baseline, delayed cap refill, and an elevated blood glucose, especially when not a diabetic. So Shadjan, why don't you take us to the differential of a patient with hypotension and suspected sepsis? So again, sepsis can cause multi-organ dysfunction, and it can lead to a lot of leaky capillaries, and this can lead to hypotension. We shouldn't forget that there can be several complications that can lead to hypotension. These include cardiogenic shock, which is when the heart is not strong enough to provide a good blood pressure, hypovolemic shock, when there's not enough volume or fluid within the blood vessels to provide a good blood pressure, similar to dehydration, endocrine abnormalities such as hypo or hyperthyroidism can lead to hypotension. Medication or drug interactions can lead to hypotension. There are also non-septic infections. We should also not forget that allergic reactions or anaphylaxis can lead to hypotension, as well as toxicological emergencies, exposures to potential harmful chemicals or medications. Those are things that are important to remember for hypotension, even if you do suspect sepsis. There is a good mnemonic for sepsis, um, utilizing some of the criteria that we've talked about before, and that's TIME, T-I-M-E. The T stands for temperature, again, higher or lower than normal. The I stands for infection, so they should have signs or symptoms of an infection. M is for mental decline or altered mental status. If the patient is confused or sleepy, lethargic, difficult to arouse. And E is extremely ill, whether that's severe pain, discomfort, shortness of breath, or the patient just doesn't look well. So again, that's time, T-I-M-E. So temperature is a really interesting thing. You know, I'm talking about that for a minute. So in sepsis patients, you know, classically, you have a very high temperature, right? Like the case we talked about in the beginning, they come with a fever, but you also can have low temperature. Patients can come in cold or hypothermic. Um, And so there's been a couple studies done just on temperature itself. And actually the in-hospital mortality for these patients rises, they're actually hypothermic. And so there was a study done in 2017 in critical care medicine that showed that the mortality increased the lower the temperature of the patient. So if the temperature was less than 37 degrees Celsius, the mortality for sepsis was 36%. If their temperature was 37 to 38 degrees Celsius, it was 25% mortality. So the colder a patient is on arrival, the worse mortality rate for them. Well, I love this study because, so I've, you know, long been actually obsessed with this topic. I don't know if you guys know, but um, I feel like everybody freaks out about a fever. You see a high temperature and usually it's not even that high and people are really stressing out about it in these patients with infection. Obviously, if you have a fever due to a drug or environment, that's something else. But your body is mounting that fever because it's trying to fight the infection. It's actually one of its responses. And so I think it's really interesting that the highest fevers had the best, you know, mortality numbers because it's like your body is working on trying to fight the sepsis. And I feel like low temperatures get ignored a lot. They they just see a temperature of like 
36 and for some reason nobody is freaking out but now it's like this puts it in pretty you know the harsh light of day that actually the lower the temperature the more we should be worried about these septic patients which makes sense it's like their body's not even working well enough to mount a fever to fight the infection yeah so it's like we have to respect the lack of fever in the presence of infection more than the presence of fever sajin can you take us off through the management of sepsis in the hospital setting so again, we are targeting that inflammatory response, the, the end organ damage, the hypotension that may be associated with sepsis. So first and foremost, we're going to try to find the source of the infection and treat with the appropriate antibiotics. That really has the biggest effect on mortality. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to give the patient IV fluids. Again, because their capillaries are leaky, because their um, heart may be stretched out a little bit, we want to load the tank is what we say with enough volume to ensure that the patient is able to maintain a good blood pressure. We also manage the patient's fever or hypothermia, if that's appropriate. Um, if the patient becomes hypotensive, even after an IV fluid bolus, we typically consider vasopressors like norepinephrine. Again, we really want to find the source of infection, and so that often involves source control. If there's an abscess that can be difficult to penetrate with just antibiotics, it might need to be cut open. And if the infection is caused by appendicitis, we may need to consult a surgeon for removal of the appendix. So I think pre-hospital, the take-home point is get IV access if you can, um, as earlier the better, and really start IV fluid resuscitation. Patia, why don't you take us through STEMSA, the Central California EMS Agency, like what would happen here in Fresno? We do not have a true sepsis protocol, but we do have non-traumatic shock protocol if they were hypotensive. Exactly. So we would use the non-traumatic shock protocol, um, which starts off with, of course, assessment, your ABCs, airway, protect the airway and do basic airway maneuvers or advanced airway if needed, oxygen, so place them on high flow, O2 monitor and treat rhythm if appropriate, and then really transport, minimize delay on scene and try therapies in route, reassessing vital signs while transporting. Uh, the next thing is really to get IV access. So try for one or two IVs and start LR, which is lactated ringers. Um, if there are no signs of pulmonary edema and the blood pressure is less than 80, then just run the LR in wide open if the blood pressure is between 80 to 100, then you can try a fluid challenge um, instead of running it, the whole thing wide open. Then if you have time, the next step is a 12-lead EKG, then of course to contact the hospital. Um, real quick on that EKG, just remember that's you're doing that for presumed cardiogenic shock. So if you have unexplained hypotension in a patient, you're going to get that EKG just in case they're having a STEMI. Um, but if you if they have a fever and a cough and no pneumonia and you think there's a sepsis, you don't have to get the EKG. But it's always good if you worry that it's cardiogenic shock to get the EKG. Good point. Now, the one thing that's um, also included in the protocol is a base hospital order for an epinephrine drip. And that's if profound shock persists. And so you'd be able to start an epi drip on the patient if you have you know a longer transport and you have time to do that. So let's go through an epi drip. One to... 10,000 is the concentration, and so it's one milligram of that in 250 mLs of normal saline. And you're going to titrate the IV with a pediatric drip to the blood pressure, and our goal is about 100 systolic. 
that's going to, so you're going to count drip rates because you don't have a pump, right? So it's 0.5 to 1.5 mils per minute and just kind of titrate to that effect. Of course, this requires a base hospital order. We don't do epidrips a lot. So if you need help, feel free to call the base. And just as a reminder, the 1 to 10,000 epi, that's like your code epi. It's not the anaphylaxis epi. So any special considerations, Sajan, you want to take us through? For the patient we are assessing for sepsis, we want to not forget about other sources of potential hypotension, such as bleeding or trauma. Um, Patients in shock of unclear etiology require diagnostic and treatment modalities that may not be available to you. So we really want to minimize delaying this on-scene time. Again, really our biggest thing will be to get IV access and to figure out this possible source of infection and really try to get them to the hospital. So we're going to transport these shock patients with lights and sirens. So that was kind of a whirlwind overview of sepsis um, for the EMS professionals. What are our take-home points? Can't miss things. Sajin. Sepsis has a very high mortality rate, so keep it on your differential. And don't forget about that hypothermia, which has a higher mortality than hyperthermia. Patio. Fluids are the mainstay of treatment, so just think establish an IV and get some fluids going. Yeah, and my take-home point is early identification is key. A lot of these patients are altered, so EMS getting that history from the family, from the caregiver, getting all the info they can to give to the receiving hospital is so important. So thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, And we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.